All right, so mine is actually kind of similar. Uh, my research is on aging and elite runners. So uh, right up your alley, buddy. Uh, my study Thanks. Comes- <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I figured I, w- I would just couch in the... Uh, the the slide in in the in the elite runner. It's okay for me to talk about being an old runner. It's not okay for other people to talk about it, unless it's me, of course. Um. So my Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey the Travel Planner. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. We appreciate your joining us as always on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. By the way, we don't often say this, but uh, please do subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, uh, give us a rating. We appreciate that. That helps other people find our, our podcast. Um, but we, we, we try not to bug you too much about that, but that would be a good thing for it. So in addition to the Facebook conversations, in addition to all the feedback, in addition to simply listening to us, which we appreciate, if you could give us a rating and a review, we would appreciate that too. Um, Patrick, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I uh, still uh, enjoy looking back at the uh, conversation we had with Nicole last week. Right on. So you listened to it? I did. It was, it was a fun re-listen. Good. Yeah, I did too. I did too. I enjoyed it. Um, so the first thing we wanted to do was actually talk a little bit about that. So, so what were some things that stood out to you? You know, the first thing that stood out to me is, so first of all, you know, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my roommate from college ended up going on and run for Zap Fitness and kind of lived that lifestyle of... Right. Um, going from collegiate athlete to Zap Fitness athlete, Cameron Bean. Cameron Bean, yes. Um, and she in in last week's conversation, Nicole mentioned that it was a one year. It took her about a one year to kind of get used to that lifestyle. Yeah, she said, you know, because before she's living in Athens, and there's a lot to do in Athens. For anybody who's ever been there, knows like there's never a lack of opportunity to find entertainment in Athens. And then all of a sudden, your life is nothing but running. You know, you're living in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, which even if you've never been there, you can guess just by the name, it's not exactly a mecca of entertainment. And I've actually heard that from many runners before, that they thought, even though she didn't she didn't mention this part necessarily, that, but I've heard many runners say that they thought that once they cut out other aspects of their life, what could be deemed distractions, actually ended up, ended up kind of creating a situation that was hard to get used to. Yeah. Because you didn't have something to let your mind wander. You didn't have something that let you yeah. kind of take your mind off of running. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, and you, and if you kind of read between the lines of some of the stuff she said, you could kind of pick up on that too. I mean, yeah. I, I was struck by the fact she said it took her a year to, to adjust. But That's like, a while. Yeah, oh yeah. But but when we said, so tell us about your typical day. She, she said, well, so we get up at 8.15 and we run, and then we do some, some core and weightlifting after that. And um, that's kind of... Then we nap. We yeah, we nap, and she said she had to be convinced like one time to nap. But then she pretty much just we're like, "What do you do for the rest of the day?" And she's like, "Well, watch movies, yeah, read books, you know." Yeah. I mean, so, so there just wasn't a whole lot more. And and frankly, I I, I kind of expected there to be a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And and I and I do think that there is there is a degree to which Zap has created purposely created this sort of. Um, enclave mm-hmm. where, where they're protected and, and isolated so they can focus like that I think that if she was at other places she might need to spend more time with sponsors or something like that um, I think if she was in other sports she might have to spend more time doing uh, like equipment checks and all that sort of thing but but running is 
it's it's complicated, but it's also very simple. <laughs> right. And so so you run, and then you rest, and you get ready to run again. Um, so yeah, I, I I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, and I've I've even I've heard of other professional runners. They talked about how they kind of live that monastic lifestyle, and then a year or two in, they're like, I got to get my real estate license or yeah. something, yeah. or become a part time journalist, just kind of do a blog on the side to kind of give them something to think about other than running. Yeah. So it's yeah. something. It's it's a different perspective because I can tell you, for me personally, as I'm like sitting in traffic on my way home from work, I can daydream like, oh my gosh, how nice would it be to to just be able to run and not have other stressors in life, but. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, you need that to some degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look back, like, the, the very first Ironman that I did mm-hmm. was in the midst of probably the busiest fall I've ever had. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I was coaching cross-country, I was teaching full-time, I was finishing my PhD, and I was doing my first Ironman. Good all, heavens. All, all, all in the same fall. And and the Ironman didn't go well, but that's because it was my first Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> and I bite too hard, which is what everybody does in their first Ironman. But, but... um I, uh, having like such a full life, you know, meant that, that there wasn't really a whole lot of time for being like, oh, well, I'll run later. Or, mm-hmm. oh, well, I don't really need to do that now. You know, it's, it's like every minute was accounted for. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I feel like that would, that would be a big adjustment, you know? Um, so for sure. I did, I thought it was funny. I, I said, so do you ever do a, you know, like an afternoon session? You ever run again? She goes, well, sometimes, you know, we do cross training and that sort of thing. She mentioned the elliptigo, which mm-hmm. I've said in other places, runners, love the elliptigo yeah like not the elliptical the elliptigo like the thing that actually goes down the road um you know mevka fleski does things on the elliptigo um there's just elliptigo that company has carved out this niche inside the running community yeah <laughs> which i think is kind of funny it's so much so that she actually said that she puts the elliptigo on a treadmill <laughs> that is phenomenal <laughs> yeah i mean it's just yeah it's like no we're not going to lo- use an elliptical we're going to use an elliptigo on a on a treadmill Right. It almost feels like Inception, a dream within a dream or something. Exactly, yeah. Um, very good. Um, uh, other things that, that I thought were interesting, um, a couple other things. Um, I thought that, that what she said about her first marathon, um, you know, it harkened back to um, something that, that Pete Ray, her coach, who we interviewed a couple of months ago, had said um, when we were talking to him, that, that you'll recall that Pete said that Bill Rogers who was a great runner of the 1970s and 1980s, a guy that I like a lot. Boston um, Bill. Yeah, Boston Billy, exactly. Won New York City Marathon four times, won the Boston Marathon four times. Um, and great runner, continued to run through through his 50s and 60s, still runs some today, I don't know how much he competes. But anyway, but he had leaned on Pete and had said, you need to be getting athletes in the marathon younger. Like this idea of waiting until they're 29, 30, you know, this conventional approach of, okay, you're going to have them run fast on the track and all that sort of thing. And then when there's performance is starting to fall off on the track then you put them on the roads you have to start running marathons very conventional approach um and and somebody asked about that on the facebook page this week and we ended up having a conversation about it but i mean that's what that's what galen rupp is currently doing right i mean it's it's what molly huddle is currently doing it's what shalane flanagan did Mm -hmm. in triathlon it's the same thing all these folks compete at the itu level and then they go to ironman sergio gomez is currently doing that and daniela reef who has won the last couple of ironman kona championships um she did that she was moderately successful in itu and then went to ironman is super successful so this idea of like moving up in distance as you get older that's the, the very conventional approach here um but pete with the pressure of bill rogers has started trying to put people in marathons a little bit younger. Um, and so when she was only 23, 24, they start getting her ready for her first marathon. And where that really plays into building the American marathon runner 
is that it takes time. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you're a 5K star, so we're just going to pop you in the marathon and you'll be good. Right. It's a totally different sport. I shouldn't right. say totally different, but it is kind of like arena football, to fo- NFL football to, mm-hmm. to agree. Because, I mean, 5K, you're you're blitzing around the track. It's 23 miles shorter than a marathon. Right. I mean, it is. you're not eating goose on right. a, during a 5K. And it takes time to build up. Some have said it takes six to seven years of marathon training to reach you know, your kind of peak marathon fitness. So you can just look at, you know, if you just chart that on a person's life, you can see you do need to start in your mid-20s or by your mid-20s to really be at your peak, at your peak age. Yeah, and, and you think about, you know, you and I talked about this in our Chicago wrap-up. Okay, so, so you run a marathon, your very first marathon, and whoever you are, even if you run super fast, even if you run, you know, 205 in your first marathon, it's still a learning experience. Yeah. Your, your best marathon is never going to be your very first marathon, probably, right? Um, and so, so you learn from that, but then you can't jump in a marathon. You can't be like, oh, I really learned a lot from that marathon. Let me do another one next week. Right. Right? Um, whether it went well or not well, you can't just, just run another one a couple of weeks later. You have to wait for another six months, seven months, something like that, at least, um, to then do another one, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're Yuki Kawauchi. Um, and so, um, and, and so, so the idea of actually getting started earlier mm-hmm. and at age 23 or 24, having those kind of rough races and learning experiences and all that sort of thing. And then by the time you get to be 27, 28, 30, um, you're, you're, you're knowledgeable enough. And of course you have the physiological background to now do it. Right. Um, it makes sense. Um, yeah. And it gives you more swings of the bat. Mm-hmm. So if you get exactly. hurt one year, it gives you a, a longer, exactly. um, or, a, you know, more repetitions to get in a good marathon. I mean, think about, okay. So Molly Huddle, who I just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and who we've talked a lot about on, uh, on here a lot. So she, um, she, in 2016, she, she ran the 10,000 meter in the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. And then she, she uh, did the New York City Marathon that year, mm-hmm. right? And it was her first marathon, so she was just kind of experimenting with all that sort of thing. And then she spends a year, and, and now, she, that now she goes out to run Boston, and that was supposed to be you know, this big coming out for her at Boston, and, and Boston was Boston with the weather. Right. right? And so she didn't end up having a great... And so, so now, now we're coming up on... It's going to be two years. By the time she runs her next marathon, it's going to be two years into the the marathon, the Molly Huddle Marathon project, and she still hasn't really busted out a great marathon yet. Right. And she's a brilliant, brilliant runner, and I think she has it in her. But it's been two years. I mean, two years is a long time in a professional sport, in a professional athlete's life. Yeah. You know. Um, so anyway, but but on on that note, by the way, so so I I did say to the person to Caitlin who was uh, talking to us on on Facebook about ideal ages that I would look up and see if there's any research on the the uh, perfect age or the, the the best age for 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 marathoners. Um, now there isn't any research on like physiology where they where they have looked at the muscle makeup and all that sort of thing of various runners and said, oh, okay, based on all of these various things, the, the, the perfect age is 27. There isn't any of that kind of research. The only research that we have is research on people who are running marathons. And for the reason that we just mentioned, that conventional approach, people who run marathons are going to be a little bit older if they're elite. Um, and a lot of people like, like you and me don't really get into marathons until their 30s or so. You know, my wife, I remember, um, she started getting into endurance sports when we got married in her early 20s, right? Mm-hmm. And she went to see Josh Glass, um, who we interviewed a month ago. And, and Josh said, just wait, in about five years, all your friends are going to be doing this too. And sure enough, as soon as Casey turned 30, 
all of her friends like are running marathons and that sort of thing, which is great, which is fantastic. But people are kind of working, like establishing their families and their jobs and all that sort of thing in their 20, and then they start doing like marathons in their 30s. And so there's my point is that there's other factors that kind of fold in, right? That determine the age that people marathon, not that they're different from oh, when am I physiologically at my best to perform a marathon? So given that, given that kind of disclaimer, in 2014 there was a Spanish study. Um, it was called the relationship between age and running time in elite marathoners is U-shaped. Um, and it was in the journal called Age, um, and it looked at the times of 45,000 runners at the New York City Marathon in 2010 and 2011. Um, and what they found is that over time, performance does decrease, um, but it's kind of a bell curve. Um, it first decreases slightly with time after their peak performance, and then more dramatically after about age 55. Um, and so that U-shape that was mentioned in the title... Um, uh, that's sort of the way that performances work. And the bottom of the U would be the fastest performances. And for men, that's about 27 years old. And for women, that's about 29 years old. And so 27-year-olds as a whole for men tend to run the fastest marathons. 29-year-olds mm-hmm. for women tend to run the fastest marathons. But but actually in the study, the most interesting part was that, that sort of U-shape. Um, and so if you back it up from 27 or 29... Um, they're about 4% slower for every year under that age. And so a 26-year-old, on average, is going to be about 4% slower than a 27-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, uh, and then a 25-year-old is going to be 4% slower than a 26-year-old man, right? Um, and then after that age, the, the times get slower by, at a rate of about 2%. And so a 28-year-old man, on average, is going to be about 2% slower than a 27-year-old. A 29-year-old is going to be about 2% slower than a 28-year-old. And so, so kind of given that U-shape, um, that means that an 18-year-old is about as comparable to a 60-year-old in terms of average times. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it takes the elevator up and the stairs down. Yeah, yeah, which is nice. Um, and uh, I, uh, I thought that was fascinating. And actually, it was very bolstering for me as a... As a by the time I run my next marathon, I'm going to be a 44-year-old, you know, and being like, eh, that's pretty cool. I, I run roughly the same time as a 21-year-old or something. Now, granted, I was much faster at a 21-year-old than I, I will be as a 44-year-old. Or maybe not. We'll yeah. see. You know. Well, I, I mean, a torn Achilles will do that to you. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I, I, I ran my marathon PR in that dodgy race back when I was 22 years old, so I sure would like to uh, to, to, to have a PR for at age 44, but we'll see. We'll see. But to your point too, and really to Caitlin's point as well, it's interesting how we don't talk about age so much with marathon training mm-hmm. as we do for other sports. And as you said, a lot of it is because somebody may say, oh, I'm faster at 40 than I am at 30, but then when you dig deeper, you find out it's because they didn't start running until 32. Right. So it's like, okay, well, if you're not training, of course you're not going to be. Right. Um, be they, 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 they weighed 50 pounds more at age 30. <laughs> right, right. Because um, like I've kind of mentioned on this podcast before, I have a little bit of an NFL background. And I can tell you, like, in the NFL, if you're, like, a defensive lineman, they will offer you $5 million less if you're 28 versus 27. Yeah. Like, it's, like, a very big deal how, like, year by year, they're like, we want to know exactly how old you are. Mm-hmm. Um. And in running, we're a bit more like, yeah, mid-30s, early. Mm-hmm. We just kind of have general categories. Yeah. Um, and it's because it's just so much messier. Because in other sports, it's kind of assumed that, you know, I'm playing baseball, I'm playing football, and I've just always done it. Mm-hmm. So you're only, you're only drawing from mm-hmm. that pool. You don't have amateurs right. Right. Um, strapping on the equipment where it's like, I've never done this before, and I'm giving it a shot. Uh, I see your point. And so, so, so the idea there is that 
a 28-year-old in football, you can draw a much straighter line across 28-year-olds because they've all probably been doing it since they were four. Right, or at the very least since they were 16. Right. You know. Interesting. All right, yeah, because nobody starts football at age 24. Right. Okay. Um, and yeah, so 28, the, the actual specific number has more of a, a particular meaning. Correct. Interesting. Uh, very good. Very good. And I imagine for football in particular as well, that extra year means... Yeah, a it's, year it's, more of hitting. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an extra <laughs> year of hitting, hit. and it means it's much more of a quick twitch um, sport. So there, like the moment you you're over thirty, thirty one, you there's no age curve. It's just you just there's no curve. It's a cliff. Okay. Uh, but anyways, we're, we're, I'm getting off on a different topic. No, but so it's the, interesting though. But the point is that you know aging in in running is kind of an interesting topic, and it's. It's a complex one because there are a lot of factors to go into it. Mm-hmm. So to bring it back to the Nicole interview, another thing I found interesting was her story about how she started running. Mm-hmm. You know, you've coached high school before. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, one thing that makes running such a fascinating sport is when you talk to people who were runners in high school and college, so many of them said something, had a story similar to hers, which they just knew a runner, mm-hmm. but it'd be somebody who's just yeah. like a weekend 5 er That's my story. A marathon runner. And then... All of a sudden, it, they realize there's this whole other world out there. Right. Like, I can tell you my story. My dad ran track and cross-country in high school. And so growing up, he just said, yeah, I think you'll enjoy that when you're in high school. We obviously knew I wasn't going to make any other sports team. I mean, I was tiny. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> then I just did it. And, like, a week into the first practice, I was obsessed with it and loved and I've loved it for 15 years. Yeah. And it's, it's just funny how you kind of grow and you, you know, that first year of running as a high schooler, it's like, I did three miles every day. It's, and you're so proud of yourself. Yeah. And then eventually you're running marathons. Right. But a lot of times it starts with one person who kind of gives you that spark and kind of introduces you into this world. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So my sister is a really high achiever in scholastically, like from the very start. And she's brilliant today. She, she's well, she's related to you, so that's not a surprise. That, so. that, that, that she's smart? Or... <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and take it that way, whatever you meant. So, um, But no, she is she is super brilliant. She was a foundation fellow at the University of Georgia, the same you know, like like my wife was, like Casey was. I'm surrounded myself with smart women. Yeah. Um, but um, It's a great life philosophy, by the way. Absolutely. Um, but... Um, my sister, she struggled, though, to find her, her place outside of school. And so she tried ballet, and she tried tennis, and she did all these different things. And then when she was in seventh grade, she tried running. Mm-hmm. Um, and it appealed to her for the same reason it appealed to Nicole, that suddenly there was a direct correlation between the amount that she worked and the amount that she improved. Right. Because my sister was such a diligent worker. Yeah. Um, and and, and she, that really appealed to her. And, and so she found her sport. She found her place. Um, and my dad had been a state champion in the 800 back in, or the 880 yards back in high school. Right, the 880. And so, and so he, had, he had been running a little bit. So he, he, I think he influenced her, kind of said, this is something that people actually do, you know. And then she, in turn, I was playing soccer, and she said, a great way to get in soccer is run cross country. And so she convinced me to do that in my sophomore year in high school. And yeah. It turns out to be one of the more fateful decisions in my life. But you're, you're totally right. Now, compare that to a place like Kenya, for example. In Kenya, everybody tries to be a runner first. Mm-hmm. You know, and then if they're not a runner, well, then maybe they'll try soccer and maybe, then maybe they'll try, you know, something else. Right. Mm-hmm. But everybody tries to be a runner first. That's the thing that everybody wants to be. And so so Kenyans, I mean, there, there are a lot of physical attributes that, that, that of course, make East African runners great. But I, I will insist that, that one of the reasons why they are such world beaters in running is because everybody tries to run first. 
And they try early. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if all if all 50 million kids that are in schools in America today were attempting to be distance runners before they attempted to be anything else, we would be able to compete with them. Right. 50 million people, of course yeah. we would. Yeah. You know? but, but, but rather, there are some you know, potentially world-class runners that are sitting on the bench in the soccer team. Right. Um, or or that are that are attempting to play basketball, or they're having dreams of, of being football players and or baseball players, and they probably never will be. Right. You know. Um, another another culture that's really prevalent is Japan. Oh yeah. In Japan, you know, their their runners are almost like our basketball players. Baseball is like their NFL. That's mm-hmm. their right. gold standard. But then running is long distance running is kind of that second level. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I get it. I mean. Um, the last thing I'll say about... Okay, so two other things I'll say about real quick. One is quick. Um, I thought it was an interesting point she made about not dropping out because she was worried about sitting on the side of the road. Yeah. What I mean, what a fascinating thing to say. Um, that, that she... I would never have thought about that. Um, but she's totally right about it. And, and so props to Zika Ray, Pete's wife, who also runs Zap Fitness, for, for saying... You know, if you drop out, you're you're actually going to be in danger because you're going to be sitting on the side of the road, getting cold, or waiting for somebody to come take care of you. That's totally correct. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I th- I just thought that was such an interesting point that that she kind of felt like she didn't have a choice to drop out. <laughs> yeah. You know. And I can tell you, I thought that running, I was like, yeah. the only safety, at like my, when I was at mile six, I was like, the closest source of safety I have is 20 miles away. Yeah. Like, and the only way to get there is on foot, unfortunately. Right, right. And you got to keep on running to get there because you start walking, you're going to cool off too. I yeah. Mean, yeah. So it's, it's uh, I hadn't thought about it in terms of, you know, you're kind of in this situation where you don't have a choice but to keep going. Um, and then the other thing, of course, that stood out to me, and, we, and we, we joked about this, but also talked about it a little bit when, um, when we were interviewing her, was about going too hard on easy runs in college. Mm-hmm. That stood out to me a lot. Um, Same. And... and as I thought about it, though, after we interviewed her and after I listened to the interview and as I continue to think about it this week, I was like, you know, it makes sense, though, because most collegiate coaches aren't going out for runs with their athletes. You know, even mine, my, my coach was in his late 20s when I was in college, and he would go out for a run with us maybe one out of every 20 runs, tops. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you think about the great college coaches, um, um, John McDonald or Vin Lenana or... or um, uh, Gagliano, Jim Gagliano, those guys—they're not going out with 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 their with their runners, right? Um, and they never did. And so runners are kind of left out on their own to, to to go for their easy runs. And and most runners, most collegiate runners, are still pretty new to this. Yeah. You know, I mean, at best they started running when they were like soft, when like freshmen in high school. So they've been runners for like four or five years. Right. You know, I, I, I was watching a race that Justin Knight, the great runner from Syracuse that I love, was running the other day. And, and they, were, they were like, he's only in his fifth year of running. And I was like, well, yeah, the guy's 21 years old. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, do you expect him to be in his 10th year of running? He, he would have started when he was 11? I mean, that just didn't happen all that much in the United States, right? Um, and so it, it makes sense that, that they're going out too hard on their easy runs. Um, because they're still kind of new runners, and their coaches aren't actually with them on their easy runs to make sure they're going easy. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So, so, they're, so they're still kind of taking that that real um, amateurish approach, that real kind of facile approach, and saying, "Oh, well, if we want to run fast, we you know we want to race fast, we need to run fast all the time." Yeah. Um, and we of course see that with new adults who who, who come into running. Uh, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, and we've had debates about it with people on 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 Facebook that say, "No, no, it's this is the way you have to do it." No, that's not what the physiology shows. Yeah. You need to run easy on your easy runs. Um, mm-hmm. And um, 
I just thought that was very interesting that she said that, that they all went too hard on their easy runs. Yeah, and, I, you know, kind of what we talked about before, too, is a lot of them come from different sports. Mm-hmm. And in the other sports... Yeah, go hard or go you home. You have to go hard or go home. Yeah. Like, if you're a soccer player, you don't jog to the ball. It's like the first there gets it. Yeah. So you gotta you got to take off and run. Yeah. Um, that's so an excellent just, point. It's just a different mindset. Yeah. And unless you have somebody that's kind of drilling it into you, saying, no, change your mindset, change your mindset, change your mindset. It, right. It, it's not going to happen. When I told you about that assistant coach that I had several years ago, it mm-hmm. was taking out the guys for an extra workout during the week. Right. Making them run up and down hills on a week when they were supposed to do an easy run. And I was wondering why their performance was falling off, and then I found out that's what he was doing. Right. But he had come from other sports. And we're going to work, we're going to do it. And, yeah. And then go hard or go home. No pain, no gain. And, he yeah. just, and, I, and I, was like, I was like, okay, that's true on your hard days. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but your easy days need to be easy. And so, so I think I would, in retrospect, I think I was very fortunate when I was in college because um, one of my team leaders, who was a year older than me, a guy named Kevin Graham, who's now a coach in Atlanta um, and, and runs a company called Graham Running. Um, and he's a great guy. He works at Fidipides, the running specialty stories. Uh, does a lot of work for Jeff Galloway, who's, of course, famous, a former Olympian. Um, and um, uh, he... Kevin was coached in high school by uh, a guy named Richard Westbrook, who's kind of a coaching legend here in Georgia. Um, and Richard Westbrook uh, used to be an ultra marathoner and literally would like race across the country. Yeah. Um, uh, in the in the summer of 1990, 1991, he raced across the country. Um, they did like 50 miles a day, um, and and more than that sometimes. He and so he he was coming from a place where he was working with a really high mileage, and and Kevin on a few occasions in high school ran like 100 miles a week so, so he was a very experienced distance runner in terms of running easy on your easy runs and he had had a really good coach when he was in high school who drilled into him you go easy on your easy runs Yeah. and he was sort of the leader of our team making us all run easy so I think I was kind of in retrospect I was sort of fortunate in that regard yeah, because you almost had the adult supervision that most don't right. have. Even though the dude was a year older than I was. Right, and right. Was not, and, and, and for anybody listening who knows him, was not an adult in other ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but he was definitely a much more mature runner than I was. Yeah. Um, and so, so if, the, if the team had been filled with people like me, yeah, we'd have been going out running hard every day. Because that's what I did my senior in high school. Yeah. You know? Um, but, yeah. But, but, I, but I do think that was sort of an interesting, interesting phenomenon that she described. Yeah, cause, I mean, if you think about it, too, you know, you kind of need that, that that adult perspective or that kind of experienced, mature perspective to, to kind of change the mindset that kind of bleeds throughout the entire team and through all workouts. So you just right. know this is what we value. Right. We value volume over intensity. Right. That's why we hammer that home at ITL just constantly. Mm-hmm. So if you ever in question... Easy easy, man. Sacrifice intensity if you have to, but don't sacrifice volume. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right, so that was a that was a long debrief here, but but this is news and research week, and so that's certainly related to the news, and 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 uh, we have a lot of news and, and a little bit of research that we want to talk about. So, are you doing your research first or me? It's been you know a while since we talked about. Uh, it. You're doing your research first. All right, so let me talk a little bit about some research on the immune system and running that popped up this week. Um, um, I think a lot of us are familiar with kind of getting that cold after you've done a major event, right? Yeah. You know, the first two weeks afterwards you get a cold, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is kind of what happens, right? Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a common enough phenomenon that, that there's actually some, some science that's around it. But there's some new research about, about uh, the immune system running. So let me background a little bit. First of all, um, back in 2007, there was a study that looked at three different groups over a six-month period. They looked at elite athletes, they looked at recreational athletes, and they looked at sedentary people. Uh, and they found that the elite athletes and the sedentary people got sick at about the same rate, while the rec athletes got sick a little bit less often. 
Now, add that to a study from way back in 1991 from the CDC that looked at more than 500 runners and found that there was a direct correlation between high mileage and getting more colds. Hmm. So, so, so you get more upper respiratory infections if you the higher your mileage was, right? Um, and so given that, there's a common belief that, that you are subjecting yourself potentially to more upper respiratory infections. You are uh, depressing your immune system by training more. Yeah. If you train a little bit, if you're a recreational athlete, um, then then you're not necessarily compromising it. And in fact, you might even be strengthening your immune system. But once you start getting up into to high numbers, which anybody who's training for a marathon will be, mm-hmm. anybody who's training for a long course triathlon will be, you're bound to be, just by virtue of having to do that for your training, then, then you are potentially uh, risking your immune system. You're, you're, you're stretching it thin. Um, and so... Um, I was kind of thinking about that. They were talking about a 2000. I was looked at a 2014 article in Runner's World. They claimed many long distance runners report getting a cold in the two weeks after a marathon. Um, and again, that's blamed on a depressed moon system. They blamed it on high fiving people, like kissing loved ones afterwards and all that sort of thing. Um, but but this idea of having an open window of, of getting sick afterwards. So so anyway, you combine all these things together, and there's this real common conventional wisdom that suggests that they immediately follow a marathon because you've depressed your immune system, then you run the marathon, or then you do the Ironman, and you're high-fiving everybody, and it's this kind of unsanitary environment, and, and you're going to get a cold within the next two weeks. Yeah. Right? And that's just kind of a, a thing that's happened with, with so many of us. But um, there's a new review of research this week from, from researchers at the University of Bath, and it was punch, uh, published in a, a journal called Frontiers in Immunology. Um, and in that article, they, they said, well, let's kind of look at what some modern research suggests. And so they didn't conduct any of their own research, but they wanted to, to bring some, some research to bear. Now, the reasoning, by the way, is that they said that this doesn't make evolutionary sense. Mm-hmm. Like... Way back in the day, if you think of early man prior to, to civilization who was, was chasing animals and food on the savanna, right? They're having these major efforts in order to try and feed themselves. And and, and if, they did it more often than we do marathons. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and if that was going to depress their immune system, leaving them vulnerable to some sort of illness, that would have evolved out. Right, right. <laughs> right? Be, 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 because, because that didn't make evolutionary sense for, for them making these big efforts and then getting sick. That didn't make sense. Especially when we forget how few diseases we have now mm-hmm. because of vaccines, etc. Right, I right. Mean, for sure. Yeah. And so, 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 so they said, let, let's kind of rethink this a little bit. And so they first looked at, at some recent studies and they found that marathoners are actually really bad at determining whether they're sick. That's um, awesome. And they said that less than one-third of folks who thought that they were sick actually were. And so, so they essentially differentiate between the studies where marathoners reported, oh, yeah, I got sick afterwards, and the ones where they actually swabbed their cheeks afterwards. Um, and the ones where the marathoners reported, oh, yeah, I got a cold. Oh, yeah, I'm not feeling so good. Um, only about a third of them truly were sick um, if, if you actually looked at the presence of germs in their bodies. Yeah. So, so that was one thing they found. The second thing they found uh, is that they tracked the paths of immune cells inside of mice. Um, now, the, the, the prevailing belief about the reason why that open window for getting sick after a marathon happens is that when you're running, your body floods your bloodstream with immune cells. And then when you stop running, those immune cells leave your blood and they die off. And so, so all these immune cells that have been in other places in your body... Or now your body is just kind of drained of immune cells, and so now you're going to get sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or cells that fight against infection. 
Um, so they did the study in mice, and they, they actually dyed their immune cells in order to track their movements. And they found that just like in us, during the very high-intensity, long exercise, uh, those immune cells flood into their blood. But then after exercise, rather than dying off, they actually retreated back into the lungs and into the gut, the places that were actually most susceptible to infection. And there were even some of them that went back into the bone marrow to spur new immune cell growth. Um, thereby strengthening the immune system rather than weakening the immune system. Um, now that was in mice, and of course there isn't a similar study in humans yet um, that, 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 that has been conducted. So as we always say, more study is needed. But this, this conventional wisdom, this prevailing idea that, that the immune system is beaten up by training and that you're probably going to get sick immediately following a major effort, um, there, there's now some suggestions that, that maybe that's not in fact the case and that potentially your immune system might actually be stronger post-marathon. What do you think? Okay, that's fascinating. So one, uh, you know, I've always heard that, you know, your immune system does kind of dip during right. or during intense training and intense exercise. So it's encouraging to know that's not the case, and that evolutionary perspective, to me, is almost convincing enough to say, yeah, wait a minute, that's not quite right here. Mm-hmm. And then the fascinating part to me was that only one-third of the people, or the runners that reported <laughs> being sick, were actually sick. Yeah. I and mean, that's fascinating because, I mean, how could you, quote-unquote, fake or, or fool yourself into being sick or fool yourself into thinking that you're sick? And then you're wondering, so then what else is missing? Are they missing the adrenaline of racing? Mm-hmm. Are they missing, uh, are they maybe waking up and feeling more sluggish because they're not looking forward to something like they, mm-hmm. they would if they were running or training? Or are they eating a bunch of garbage? Yeah, are they eating a bunch of garbage? Yeah, are they now pounding Which, which I would be. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I make a point to do that in the week after a race. We're going to get them on nutrition next time, but... but but the week after race, I'm like, I'm like, pizza, beer, ice cream, candy. Yeah. That's like my whole diet. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, you're going to feel worse if that's what you're eating every day. Right. You're going to feel sluggish and have a headache. <laughs> yeah. and oh, man. I'm sick. Energy. Yeah. <laughs> no, probably not. It's just because you're not training. Yeah. Interesting. And you're not getting those endorphin boosts and all that sort of thing. So, right. So, yeah. So, I, I, I think that is an interesting part about it. It's kind of almost a side note, but I think I think actually it is sort of an interesting part. And there is something to be said for like the post-marathon, I shouldn't call it depression, but like blues. sadness. Blues. There we go. That's, yeah. that's the better word. Where you've kind of had this high, you've had this goal you've, you've pushed towards for four to six months or so, and then it's done. You kind of have to yeah. reset and reframe your life. Yeah. Um, so, that's really interesting. But that is an encouraging study to me because it's just one more nail in the coffin of running is bad for you right. and that kind of thing. Or, you know. Uh, what you got? All right, so mine is actually kind of similar. Uh, my research is on aging and elite runners. So uh, right up your alley, buddy. Um, my study Thanks. Comes, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I figured I would, I would just couch it in the... Uh, the the slide in in the in the elite runner. It's okay for me to talk about being an old runner. It's not okay for other people to talk about it, unless it's me, of course. Um, yeah, maybe. So my study comes from NIH. Uh, it's an article published in the Medical Science Sports Exercise Journal. Um, so it's a longitudinal study. It, for those of you who don't know, that means they look at um, subjects over a long period of time. They don't just you know measure in one point in time. It's usually spanning over decades. Uh, so it's a longitudinal study that assesses cardiorespiratory capacity and running economy of Olympic distance runners over several decades. So they wanted to know um, if these Olympic distance runners maintain their high level of fitness you know, as they aged. Um, so in this study, 26 male runners training for the 1968 Olympics were recruited to participate. 
Um, they looked at their max heart rate, their VO2 max, and their running economy. And they looked at all three of those factors in 1968, 1993, and then again in 2013. So 25 years and 40 years after they were Olympic athletes. Very cool. Um, and the study found that higher initial fitness in younger years uh, significantly contributed to higher fitness with aging, despite the expected age-related drop in fitness that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. So older, also they found that older athletes could in fact maintain higher levels of cardiorespiratory fitness as they age. So while many other studies have looked at changes of fitness in different age groups, um, few studies have actually followed the same individuals as they age. Right. Um, and none have examined world-class athletes specifically. Um, and to get a bit more into the, the details, they did find that like maximum heart rate did not drop significantly until the athletes at the 40-year mark, so until they were about six, in their 60s or so. Um, at the t- yeah, and at the 25-year mark, so when and they were more in their like mid-40s or so, um, they found that the uh, drop in maximum heart rate was like two beats a minute. Yeah. That's very, very low. Yeah. Um, that's negligible. Yeah, and that's obviously much smaller than the individual differences two 25-year-olds would have, mm-hmm. you know, an elite athlete versus maybe more amateur athlete. Um, so to kind of sum it up, what they found was that while the former, former Olympians lost fitness, um, through the decades, they lost some fitness as expected, they still ranked very highly in their age groups for, um, these fitness, um, markers. They, so they had a kind of a significant buffer against many of the health issues that come with old age. Even though they lost some of the fitness, they still were in the top quartile or the top percent or so of their age. And there are two explanations for that. First is that these subjects are just simply aerobic outliers. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of mutants, so to speak, mm-hmm. and they ha- are capable of producing enormous cardiac um, mm-hmm. output with a relatively modest um, heart rate. So they're just outliers. They're just almost kind of their own category or own breed. Which makes sense, right? I mean, so, so if, if you say, well, they're, they're top 25%, or top two percent, right? Because you were talking about Olympians here, top you know point two point two percent, yeah. I mean, and then and then they would continue to be top point two percent. So everybody's getting slower, and everybody's declining. Just the whole curve sort of is going yeah, down. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, so so that that, that that would make sense. But what was what was the other? The second really is that some of our traditional like the various heart rate predictors, like take two twenty minus your age, right. just simply doesn't work for outliers. Mm. It works in the middle of the bell curve, but. It just simply doesn't work for, for the edges, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one thing I do want to point out is it's unclear how much these athletes trained over those 45 years. Yeah. Okay, so like we know Which that they were... pretty crucial. Yeah, like we know that they were busting their tail in the 60s to get to the Olympics. However, um, one thing that was pointed out in this study is that though they obviously trained hard in the 1960s when they were going for the Olympics... Um, we also know that only two of the athletes have even entered into any Masters competitions. Yeah. Which would suggest that they're not training competitively anymore. Right. Now, right. maybe they're still doing huge mileage and really kind of doing VO2 max workouts, you know, twice a week or so, and they're just not racing. Mm-hmm. However, I would say it's a pretty safe bet that, right. if anything, they're just going for, for a jog. Mm-hmm. Um which is pretty interesting to think about when you look at, okay, then what does that mean in terms of how much they invested in themselves and their fitness and their body in the 60s, mm-hmm. and then what does it mean for how they've aged? Mm-hmm. So in terms of future studies, you know, obviously we need to look at aging and, and fitness in a more robust manner. As we discussed a bit earlier, there's a lot we don't know. 
But it is encouraging, I think, for, for young athletes who are training for marathons and really kind of going for the gold, even if you're not Olympians, even if you're just somebody who wants to be a Boston qualifier or run your best in PR. This does seem to suggest that 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 effort is not just wiped off the face of the earth. Right you still kind of keep some of that fitness to some degree mm-hmm. later on in life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, then, and, and then part of that could be that you, know, you need to have a VO2 max of at least like 15 or 17, which is very low, mm-hmm. just to be able to go for a jog. Just to be able to go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And so if you always kind of keep yourself, even though that's not enough to run a marathon, mm-hmm. it's still enough to kind of stay active and walk your dog and do those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, so yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting things in here for me. W- one thing, just speaking from my own experience, mm-hmm. my maximum heart rate hasn't really gone down that much over yeah. the course of the past 20 years. My, my threshold heart rate is, is roughly the same as it was when I was in college. And that's very interesting to me, actually. Yeah. Um, and I keep kind of expecting it to. I keep waiting to come back from an injury or, or, or go out for a run and have it change. And it just hasn't yet. Yeah. Um, and I think it will, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it'll, it certainly won't be overnight. But, but, but I do think that's kind of interesting. So, so in a, I'm, I'm, I'm not an Olympic-level athlete, but, but to some degree, I, I do think it's interesting um, that, that I've seen that in myself. The other thing that I think is... is um, is interesting is it kind of circles back around what we were talking about before about getting younger people involved in marathons and then also just um, the way that we culturally don't have people necessarily or that we have people coming to marathons or coming to distance running at later ages. Yeah. This suggests to me something that I've often said is that once you do workouts, they never actually leave you. Yeah. Right? And so, so, so if you can do workouts, if you can get into this sort of thing in your 20s, you're going to be in a better place in your 60s mm-hmm. because of what you did in your 20s. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, obviously most 20-year-olds don't tend to think about that. Some, some like, you know, you probably did, like, yeah. like think about their retirement and stuff like that, right. you know? But, but this is, it's almost like making uh, an investment in, in your long-term fitness by getting fit early in your life. Absolutely. Do you know what I'm saying? It builds a higher ceiling for you to... Yeah, you know, come down from. Or... Yeah, I, I, so I think that kind of makes for an interesting thing, and, and it makes for compelling, uh, potentially compelling argument around getting uh, young people fit, um, and and obviously a very distressing um, uh, picture of of kind of where we might be headed, given that that young people aren't always fit in the United States today. Yeah, and and to kind of add my kind of personal experience as well. So I took off about f- almost four years or so between running in college and training for my first marathon. Mm-hmm. And I do think having those seven years or so mm-hmm. of competitive running beforehand, sig- it significantly accelerated Absolutely. the pace I could ramp things up yeah. and jump into marathoning. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, I, I, I'm, I adamantly, I mean, because I missed some time too. Yeah. Right? I, 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 missed, I missed time when I was working on my PhD. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you back up a little bit from that, I wasn't really competing. Right. Um, but, but I missed about three years mm-hmm. when I was working on my PhD full time. And then a fourth year when I was courting my wife. Um, and and so, so I had about four years where I wasn't really competing and running all that much and then kind of folded back into it. Um, and and so, so, yeah, I very much believe that, that all that work I was doing at a faster pace back when I was in college, I'm, I'm still reaping the benefits of that now. Even though I'm not running as fast as I was then, um, I'm running faster now than I would be had I not done all of that. You know, if I would have stopped running at the end of high school and not run into college and not done four more years worth of workouts and mileage and all that sort of thing, and I then gotten back into running, I would not be running as well and as fast now as I as I as I am. Right. You know, I, I strongly believe that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, I think that is very interesting. Very and important. the kind of optimistic takeaway from that is, 
we've all had marathons or, or big Ironman where you, you train hard and it's a disappointment and then you think, oh, why did I train that hard just to not get what I wanted or just right. not to meet Good my goal? Point. This can kind of offer some hope where that train did not go away. Mm-hmm. No, you can't jump back into an A race a month later, mm-hmm. right? You did lose a little bit of that edge in the short term, right. but you did still invest in your long-term growth and your long-term kind of fitness um, moving forward. Excellent point. I totally agree. And I, and I, 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 I say that to athletes all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that when the race didn't go, the big target race didn't go quite as well as you wanted it to, or something else like that. I say it to myself because my last big target race didn't go as well as I wanted it to. Yeah. Um, that that no, that training's not gone. That's still worthwhile. That's still there, um, and it's and it's going to help you next time, um, and your next one's going to be better. You know, right. eventually that good race is going to come. Yeah, I get it. Very good. Very cool. Um, let's talk about some news. There's a lot of news going on. So so, uh, and I think it's just the nature of it being May. Yeah, you know Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to everybody, um, <laughs> to all the moms. Um, but uh, I, I think that that uh, so we want to touch on a lot of news, and then then we'll take deeper dives into some news. So the first piece of news that I simply can't let get by without mentioning is that the Zero Detailing has begun. Um, now it's still fairly early on. It's only you know like stage uh, seven or eight. I want to say is today or eight or nine is today. They've already had one rest day. Oh, did I tell you this already? Where did the Zero Detailing begin this year? Not a clue. Just take the wildest guess you possibly can as to where the Tour of Italy, a three-week bike race around Italy, they sometimes like to begin in, in foreign places, you know, in order to try and increase the exposure, the global exposure for cycling. Where do you suppose the Giro d'Italia began this year? First well, three days. Well, if you're talking about, like, the craziest place, I'd say, like, Germany or something. Or ha! Something like that. Israel. Nice. They spent three days in Israel. They had an opening time trial in and around Jerusalem. Is how the Giro d'Italia began this year. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, you know I'm had, a fan of that. <laughs> and then they had a, 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 the second stage was in and around Tel Aviv, and I can't remember where the third stage was. But then, and then they had a rest day, and they transferred back over to, to uh, Sicily, and then they had the fourth stage in Sicily, and, and now they're going up through the mainland of, of Italy. Uh, but anyway, so that has begun, and perhaps in a couple of weeks when we talk about news and research again, we'll be talking about the, the outcome of that race. But still too early on to figure out who exactly is going to win that particular stage race. Um, a uh, another piece of news that we'll just kind of touch on real quickly, and we actually had uh, I had some some long conversations not on the Facebook or not on the uh, most pleasant exhaustion page, but on on the page of an athlete that uh, that comes to the Tuesday morning track workouts. Uh, Jacqueline, uh, she had she and I had talked a little bit about Ironman Texas, and then I had mentioned an article to her, and then I shared the article with her, and we ended up having this long conversation. But Ironman Texas was a couple of weeks ago. It was the uh, North American Ironman Championships, um, and uh, in that race there was a a new all time best Ironman best um, um, record, you could say, but it's not actually a record. It's an Ironman best. It's the fastest anybody's ever gone on an Ironman course. Um, and then in the women's race, it was the uh, the new uh, best ever bike split in the women's race. Uh, a woman went under 420 um, in the bike race. Um, well, over time, a couple things, you know, over the first couple of days after the race, a couple things come out. First of all, it comes out that the, the, the bike course on which the record was set was short. Um, and then the run course was actually even a little bit short. The bike course was like two miles short, and the run course was about 300 meters short. Um, and so there was some question as to whether they're going to recognize these bests and all these sorts of things like that. And then Ironman came out and said, no, this is the course we gave you, and so, so we will recognize the best times here on this course, even though the course was short of 140.6 miles. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and then in addition, there was lots of conversation around drafting. 
um, that it was a three-loop bike course, and, and it was a fast swim, and so a lot of people got out of the water together. Um, and they, they, they bunched up in these big, huge uh, uh, packs on the bike, and we're all drafting off mm-hmm. one another, which is uh, not allowed in, in Ironman distance triathlons. They're supposed to be non-drafting affairs. Um, and so, so a lot of uh, conversation around that uh, that we got involved in. But uh, anyway, uh, we couldn't mention the news without talking about that thing. And then, Patrick... Yeah, and then another piece of news is that Galen Rupp won the Prague Marathon with a time of two hours, six minutes, and seven seconds, right. which is absolutely smoking. <laughs> um, so just to give some background on this, he was signed up to run the Boston Marathon or, and started, but had to drop out of the race relatively early due to the conditions. Well, he, he dropped out about 20 miles. He went pretty far. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to kind of take a bit of a sidetrack, I feel like that's that is the latest you can drop out of a race mm-hmm. and still have a a turnaround race a couple weeks later. I totally agree. Like some, so somebody said to me, "How did he run twenty miles at Boston and then turn around and run so well in Prague?" And I said, "Because it was only twenty miles." And I realize that's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but like each one of those miles past the twenty mile mark probably would have taken as much out of him as the previous twenty miles. Right. You know. Yeah, I always tell people, and this is a bit of a side note, but. They, you know, it's like we said. It's common to have a race. You, know, you run a, a Boston Marathon. It's disappointing. The weather's not good. You don't hit your goal time. Whatever it is, and people say, "All right, well, I don't want to lose this fitness, so I'm going to sign up for the Prague Marathon or, mm-hmm. or you know, mm-hmm. some local mar- uh, marathon in May." Mm-hmm. To me, the rule of thumb is if you ran two hours or less, or twenty miles or less, mm-hmm. um, then you can think about it. Mm-hmm. But if you completed the marathon, or if you ran significantly longer than two hours. Because I think he, he dropped out of, like, what, hour, you know, five or something. I mean, it wasn't too far, or, excuse me, two hours. Yeah, it was probably, dropped, I mean, like, like, probably, it was under two hours. So yeah, I don't know what, my math is going way like off there. probably, like, 150 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, if you stay under the two-hour threshold and you stay under the 20-mile threshold, I think you can be okay. Mm-hmm. You can pull it off. It's mm-hmm. still a crapshoot, but you can pull it off. Mm-hmm. But if you've completed it or if you've gone over the two-hour mark, I think that's when it's like, look, we need to just hit reset and, and recover. Yeah. Your, your body's not going to be able to recover. Yeah. But back to Galen, um, he ran just an absolutely phenomenal time. It was the third fastest non-African-born marathon in history on a record-eligible course. Mm-hmm. Okay, And it, he is, it was the 88th fastest marathon in history on any type of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also the fastest non-African-born marathon run by an American on a record-eligible course. <laughs> now, that's kind of a mouthful, okay? That's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. Um, but really, all that's saying is it's the, the fastest non-African-born uh, marathon run by an American, not including Ryan Hall's 204.58, which he ran at the 2011 Boston, which was... With a tailwind. Yeah, it had a huge tailwind. So it was kind of the inverse of this year's Boston. So all and, that is and, to say... And, and Khalid Kanuchi's 205 in London in 2002. Correct. Which was a world record at the time. And Khalid Kanuchi was, was a new American citizen. He, he became an American citizen. He was from Morocco. And he became an American citizen in 2000. And so as a new American citizen in 2002, he sets a world record, which was a, therefore an American record as well. He ran 205-something. Um, but anyway, keep going. Correct. So all that mouthfuls to say is this was a phenomenal time. <laughs> Sometimes when you see these fast times... It can be hard to know the difference between like 206 and 208 and 209. It's just smoking. Mm-hmm. This was phenomenal. Yeah. This was this really lived up to the hype. Yeah. Um, in a way, this might be his most impressive race, even beyond the Chicago Marathon. Oh, it was. Um, so kudos to Galen Rupp. Happy to see it. 
in a way, I did not expect it just because it's, you know, like I said, I'm just not a fan of the re- return marathon or the Well, he kind of snuck in. Turnaround. Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't really, he, he didn't talk to the press a whole lot in the in the two or three weeks after Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he kind of snuck into this race, and, and it wasn't on most people's radar, and then he ends up going and running. A time that, that puts him in a much more elite place where he belongs yes. than, than that 209 in Chicago did. Correct. Um, which is good. Um, now, one other kind of quick side note I do want to say on it um, uh, is that I saw a lot of people on Facebook and, and message boards and that sort of thing being like, oh, it's finally, you know, a, a real American runs 20607. And I have no use for that point of view whatsoever. Yeah. Khalid Kanuchi is, is the American record holder. He was an American citizen. He's a naturalized American citizen, but he immigrated to the United States for reasons that people immigrate to the United States. His wife was an American. He wanted to come here for more opportunity and all that sort of thing. He is still today living in the United States and is an American citizen. So the time that he ran in 2002 is the American record, period. Um, and Agre- so, agree wholeheartedly. So, so like the, the whole idea that, oh, well, Galen Rupp's a real American. Okay, I, I understand that you can say, okay... That the, the, he's the first person born on American soil that has run that fast. I, okay, I can get that. I can appreciate how, why that might be somewhat inspiring to you, but suggest that his performance is the real American record and that Khalid Kanuchi is like some, some infiltrator that, that came in and stole our record, I think that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and racist and, and xenophobic and all sorts of other things. So, um, so anyway, yeah. uh, I know you didn't think that, Patrick, but. Yeah. I would say just in general, when somebody says quote unquote real like that person's quote unquote a real man it's like yeah. okay what does that mean Come yeah on, yeah and yeah any any anytime somebody qualifies something by saying it's real real americans real man something like that you know they're coming from a particularly uh narrow point of view um uh so speaking of, of running perhaps not a not a great piece of news here you might have seen that asvel kiprop who was one of the best 1500 meter runners over the course of the past several years um, he uh, tested positive for EPO a couple weeks ago. Um, he was the 2008 Olympic champion in the 1500 meters, and then he was a world champion in 2011, 2013, and 2015 in the 1500. Uh, so really the most dominant 1500 meter runner over the course of the past decade in the world. Uh, Kenyan athlete. Um, uh, so terrible that, of course, he, he tested positive for EPO. Um, um, don't ever like to see that. Um, but it's, it's, it's getting a little thicker. At this point, the, the, yeah. the plot is thickening. Um, a few days after um, it was announced that he had tested positive, he released a statement. It was a very long statement that I read um, that, that, that alleged two things. First of all, the drug testers, the people who were going to be testing him for, for drugs, called him the night before and said, hey, we're coming to test you tomorrow morning, which is an enormous breach of protocol. Um, they're supposed to surprise you and show up unannounced. Yeah. Um, and so they, they can potentially catch you in the middle of a drug cycle or something else like that. They called and gave him a heads up. Uh, major breach of protocol. Secondly, while they were there, they asked him for money. And weirdly, strangely enough, he went and gave it to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't give him cash because he said he wanted to have like a trail of it. And so he went on to like a cash app or a PayPal app or something like that, whatever it is they use in Kenya, whatever their app is. He did that and he PayPal'd the money over to, to this drug tester from the, the Kenyan Federation who's in his living room administering a drug test. Oi. Yeah, and so, so, <laughs> so, so the whole thing is just, just really, really kind of dodgy. He's also, it's worth mentioning, he's from the same management company, Rosa and Associates, um, as four other big names to te- that have tested positive since 2012. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to have guilt by association here, but at the same time, there's something going on with that group, it seems like. Um, uh, and it, it's almost like college basketball, where if I were to show you a list of teams that have been nailed for scandals, mm-hmm. 
when you look at the coaches, you see it's like two or three coaches, and yeah. they just jump from school to school. Right, right. You know? Yeah. So, so anyway, that the, so so we did want to mention that one as well, and we're kind of we're kind of hitting the news quickly here, but but that's something you might hear more about, and something we might end up talking a little bit more about mm-hmm. later on. Um, more good news. Yes, yeah, so back to good news. And like as you mentioned, we're kind of hitting the highlights and then, and then moving on because we have a lot to discuss this week. But Jenny Simpson uh, broke the American record for the two mile at the Drake Relays, running a nine sixteen to beat Shannon Roby's previous record of nine twenty by four seconds, right on. which is a significant um, you oh, know yeah. improvement in the time. Uh, so in the race, Simpson won by almost 15 seconds, beating the second-place competitor by almost 100 meters. I mean, it was phenomenal to watch. It almost looked like a high school uh, race. Um, and the beautiful part about watching it was she just made it look so easy. She really dominated the race. It almost looked like she had more when she finished. I mean, because she was running by herself. She ran her last lap in 63 seconds, which is Ooh. quite a negative split. It's almost six seconds faster than her pace for the first seven laps or so. Um, and to me, that's the most beautiful um, type of race to watch is the, the, the mile, two-mile, 5K, 10K, where the winner just absolutely blasts the final four to 600 meters. That's just kind of, to me, it's just beautiful to watch. She was very smooth, very strong, and it really kind of makes you think about how we sh- will she transition to the 5K if she, do- she does indeed decide to make that transition, which have been kind of rumored for, for a little while now. She ran a sub-15 5K in college, um, so she has some pedigree there. Uh, when she was at the University of Colorado, she was a two-time runner-up at the NCAA Cross-Country Championships. She was a three-time outdoor track and field All-American. Her best race was probably the 1,500-meter race and the 3,000-meter steeplechase, so she's a bit more of a 1,500-3K uh, specialist. Um, she won bronze in the 1,500 at the 2016 Olympics. She won... Uh, let's see, the 2011 Outdoor World Championships in the 3K. She set an American record in the 3K at the 2008 Olympics. Um, like I said, but there has been some chatter about her moving up to the 5K now that she's 31. Mm-hmm. So it was a fascinating performance. She's raced 11 times at Drake at, at the Drake track, and this oh, is wow. a nice little factoid, and she's won all 11 races. So she's almost like the Michael Jordan who just wins every finals uh, they're in. <laughs> uh you know, for those of you who maybe are not, you know, big into track yet, or maybe you don't know, have quite too much history into track and field or following the, the, the elite track or the pro track, Drake is sometimes overshadowed by the pin relays and the Peyton Jordan race, um, but it is really one of those elite um, tracks. It's kind of one of the more hallowed grounds we have in our sport. Mm-hmm. Um, it is almost like the, the track at, at Oregon or, you know, the pin relays. So the fact that she's gone 11 for 11 between the Drake Relays and the World Championships, it's it's pretty impressive. Very cool. Very cool, yeah. Bronze medalist at the most recent uh, Olympic Games in the 1500. Uh, silver medalist at the most recent World Championships in the 1500. So, yeah, congrats to her. Um, but, yeah, again, you know, it's it's you, you say she's moving up to the 5,000, might be moving up to the 5,000 now that she's 31. So that's like the milers version of what we were yeah. talking about at the outset of the podcast, you know, moving up to the marathon, how she's moving up to the 5K. Um, because because her her fifteen hundred meter legs aren't, aren't maybe aren't there anymore. Is she the one? And I was just looking up trying to figure it out. Is she the one who who in who was sponsored by New Balance? And then during the two thousand sixteen Olympics, she put her New Balance shoes around her neck so that she they, they captured the picture of her. I was just googling it trying to see while you were talking um, in order that New Balance could be in the shot because Nike has the 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 monopoly on USATF. 
uh, outfits. Yes. Okay. That's her. Yeah, I like her. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I love that. Yeah. yeah, no. It was very cool. So 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 background that real quick. Some some of you might be aware. Uh Nike signed a deal with USA Track and Field uh a few years ago that basically gave Nike exclusive rights to outfit the USA track and field teams uh, on the international stage, be it the Olympics or the World Championships, um, from now until literally like 2050. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a long time. Yeah, a long, long time. Um, and and uh, the problem with that is that, that a lot of athletes like Jenny Simpson are sponsored by other companies, um, and those other companies are, are pretty good to them. And what's more, a lot of athletes have sort of a bad history maybe with Nike of, of, of maybe being sponsored by them for a short period of time and being cut loose or something like that. And so, or specific with the Nike Organ Project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so Jenny Simpson, um, when she uh, medaled in the 2016 Olympic Games, she was wearing Nike clothing because she was representing the United States, and she was outfitted by by Nike because she was outfitted by USATF, USA Track and Field. Um, but she wanted to make sure she got you know love for her sponsor, which is New Balance. So she took off her spikes, put them around her neck. And walked around the track with them around her neck. So, so all the pictures of her, of her face, and the flag in the background, of her holding up her hands in, in celebration of her bronze medal. Um, yeah, she had the Nike swoosh on her shoulder on her uniform, but she also had the New Balance logo right next to her face because she had her shoes around her neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that was pretty gangster. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I kind of <laughs> love little stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, a couple more quick things here. Uh, the pay issue at the Boston Marathon. Um, and so that's also been in the news a little bit lately. And so so just to kind of mention it real quickly, um, um, there's I, I got into a conversation on email about this this week with uh, with one of our listeners too. And, and uh, to, to give the quick background here, uh, in the Boston Marathon, they pay 15 deep on the men's and women's side. And the Boston Marathon, to their credit, gives the same amount of money to the women's winner as they do the men's winner. The women's fifth place is due to the men's fifth place. They're, they're, they're equal pay all the way down through 15. Mm-hmm. Um, but they start the women about 25 minutes before they start the men. Uh, they start the elite women's race about 25 minutes before they start the men. And that's a good thing. It gets the women right out there in front of the camera. All the fans can see who the, the women are. They, they, they get their own attention as opposed to being kind of lost in the men's race, right? Um, and so the, the women get the attention they, they need and they deserve uh, to race against one another. But in order to be eligible for that prize money, you have to start in that elite men, women's race. It starts about 25 minutes ahead of time. Um, and there's about 45 people that, that started in that race, 45 mm-hmm. women who started in that race. Um, well, because Boston was such a, uh, uh, I don't know. Just tumultuous weather. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was just so crazy. Um, the, 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 the recently, um, there were women who finished in the top 15 that didn't start in that in that elite wave. Mm-hmm. That if you go by their chip times, um, they actually finished in, in the top 15. Um, and the highest of those was actually fifth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a woman who, who finished fifth um, uh, started in wave one. Now, she started in a different race. She started with all these men. She started with, with uh, you know, a thousand people all at one time. Um, and so according to the rules, since she didn't start in the elite wave... Um, she was not given the, mon- the money for finishing fifth. Instead, the money for finishing fifth went to Nicole DiMercurio, who finished sixth, but she started with that elite wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, in particular, there was an article on BuzzFeed um, yeah. where they said it was an issue of gender equity and it's being sexist against women, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's uh, regrettable and, that it was portrayed that way. Yeah, and yeah. I, would, I would say, I, I have the article pulled up here. The article is titled, This Woman Placed Fifth in the Boston Marathon. If she were a man, she'd have won $15,000. 
Yeah, and it's it's just and so, so, so they portrayed it as an issue of gender equity, and mm-hmm. and and their reasoning was that only forty six women, or I think that's the number, forty six women that started in that elite race, only forty six of them were eligible for the 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 fifteen uh, top places, but whereas men, there were roughly a thousand men because they start the elite men's way, which is you know the forty five or so men. At the same time as they start wave one, they just start them at the front of the race. Right, right. Um, and there's like I got to start right there. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, so you were eligible for the prize money because you started at the same time as mm-hmm. those elite men. Right, right. Um, and so, um, and so, so they portrayed that as an issue of gender equity. Um, I, I don't, th- I don't see it as an issue of gender equity um, yeah. because, and I, I think Boston has gone out of their way and has been a leader in gender equity by by, by giving fifteen places deep and giving the same there. Um, I think what they should do to rectify the problem in the future is just to start that elite men's wave two minutes ahead of starting wave one, mm-hmm. and then only those forty five guys would then be would th- th- then be eligible for it. That's what they do in the Peachtree Road race, as a matter of fact. Yes, um, it they, is. They, they start them about two minutes early. Um, to, to, to avoid this very sort of issue here. Um, and, you know, they may well do that. But one way or another, because of the outcry around it um, and because the, the, the Boston Athletic Association didn't want to be perceived as being unfair, uh, they went back and said, okay, those three women that finished in the top 15 that, that according to our rules, shouldn't be awarded the money, uh, we are going to, in fact, give them the money that they would have gotten had, had they finished in those places and started in the elite women's race. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so kudos to them for, for doing that, even though I, I, I certainly don't believe they had to. Uh, yeah, it was a classy move on the the part of the Boston Athletic yeah. Association, yeah. Um, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, yeah. And then, do you have one more thing to talk about, or are we going to talk about this last time? Sure. Or, or I'll just kind of add to that that discussion yeah. a bit. So, you know, being one who was at at Boston and ran it, so the the elite women started at nine thirty two a.m. Mm-hmm. and the 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 open or the wave one competitors and the elite men started at ten a.m. There there was a difference between the wind and rain at nine thirty mm-hmm. and even at ten thirty. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to really draw it out between 9.30 and 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that really did it. There's a reason why the elite women seem to run significantly slower, mm-hmm. whereas the elite men did not seem to have nearly as big of an impact on their race. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is I can tell you... Well, and, and, that, and that matters, by the way, in, in this conversation, because cause literally you're talking about the, the elite women who started at 9.32 ran in different conditions from the women who started in Wave 1. At 10 a.m. At 10 a.m. Right. And so, so the women who, who are now getting compensated, they ran in different conditions, and better conditions. Right. And I can tell you, too, a lot of people ask me personally, oh, well, I saw that the winner, the women's winner was like, you know, 10 minutes or so slower than the previous year's mm-hmm. women's winner. I can't remember. I don't have it offhand. And I told them, look, my time was not slowed down 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I was a part of a massive mm-hmm. just pack of people. Right. I was not running into the headwinds the way Desi and Shailene were. Their race mm-hmm. was, I mean, they were running into huge headwinds. Mm-hmm. Even though I had headwinds technically, I had 500 people to break the wind in front of me. Right. So it and, was. And, a, and you said in the first half of the race, that's what you spent all your time doing. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I would pull out just to search past people, it was like the emergency brake was immediately thrown on. Yeah. So um, let's to, to kind of backtrack. I think. The only real issue to kind of offer some clarity is I think the framing of the issue is what's frustrating to us as runners and uh, to people who are very committed to the running community um, and very committed to the, the Boston Athletic Association and all the great things they, they do for, for the running community as a whole. And, and who believe in gender equity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's frustrating because um, the marathon starting the elite women first ahead of everyone else, it's the right call. You want, you want the person, the, the female winner 
to be able to cross the finish line first. You don't want her to cross and then have, you know, somebody else crossing along with her, mm-hmm. like it like would happen in like a neighborhood 5K. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me is first the right call. Um, in terms of the prize money, first it is a race. It's not a time trial, and there is a difference between mm-hmm. winning a race and just trying to run your fastest time. Even though that doesn't sound like it sounds like it's the same thing, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, second, you know, like we've touched on before, by the elite women starting earlier, they had a separate race. They had different issues. They couldn't draft on each other. And in this particular race, in my opinion, and based on my memory, the win in the ring was worse. Um, and then lastly, you know, in terms of like defining what who is an elite runner or an elite athlete, they said before the race, if you ran a 247 or faster, you could be in the elite women's field if you're a woman. That time is about 20 minutes slower generally than the general winner. So that's a huge safety net. It's not like they said you have to be within three minutes of previous mm-hmm. year's winners. Um, it was just, it was a freak day. And then lastly, imagine if somebody had run a 238. Yeah. Faster well, than Desley. Would we then say Desi didn't win? I mean, that to me is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a gender issue. I think it's more of a start time issue. Mm-hmm. Um and then, of course, the sub-elite men can win prize money because they start the race at the same time as the elite men. Um, so it's the same situation. But you, just, but, but you would have to beat that elite man to the line, though. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it sucks. It's not... That's, that's not a very articulate way to say it, but it's a very unfortunate time in a, in a freak year. Um, and that's kind of, that was kind of my takeaway from it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll see if there are any rule changes. I'm not sure there need to be, but we'll see. So it'll be something to follow moving forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there need to be any rule changes. There might be a logistical change. If they decided next year to start the men two minutes ahead of time, the elite men two minutes ahead of time. I love that idea. I, 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 I would have no problem with that. Even though it would disqualify me or you from getting prize money, I'd be okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, assuming that we're not going to be you know, running super fast later this year and qualifying for the elite men's wave, which we won't. Um, yeah, so, so, so anyway, um, we'll see about that. All right, so last thing I want to talk about. So speaking of political minefields, and by the way, folks... If you disagree with us or if you have something to, to, to bring to bear on this or, or, if, or if, you, if you want to express a point of view that we're not expressing, uh, whether you agree with us or not, we're okay with that. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I do not feel in any way uh, lessened by being challenged. Um, and so by all means, I, I, I was telling Patrick just before we started here, the, the interaction with people about the podcast, be it in person on the side of the track, be it in Facebook, be it via email, that's actually what I like about doing the podcast the most. Um, so speaking of political minefields, let's talk about uh, an issue that, that Paula Radcliffe herself, the, the world record holder in the marathon, British, uh, British woman, uh, called a political minefield. And that's the new IAAF testosterone rules. Now, I, I'm going to go ahead and spoil for you here, give you a quick spoiler alert. We're, we're not to a big conclusion on this just yet. Um, no. and, and by we, I mean me and Patrick. But I also mean the track and field world. Um, we're not really to, to, to a conclusion on this yet. So this is sort of an ongoing issue. So what I wanted to do is kind of update everybody on kind of where we are and what the issue is. Um, and then perhaps you can form your own opinion and we'll, we'll give you updates and you can follow updates on your own over the course of the next several months. But um, uh, you probably saw recently, about two or three weeks ago, uh, that the IAAF, the, uh, the governing body for track and field um, around the world, um, has created a separate female classification uh, for athletes with differences of sexual development. Differences of sexual development. They call them DSDs. Um, and that new uh, classification is going to be introduced. All these rules are set to go in effect on November 1st of this year. 
Um, and those athletes with DSDs um, are going to be required to reduce and then maintain their testosterone levels to no greater than 5 nanomoles per liter uh, by, by the 1st of November if they want to convene events ranging from 400 meters to the mile. So, again, anybody who qualifies as a DSD female athlete uh, has to, to chemically alter um, their, their natural testosterone levels to bring them down to 5 nanomoles per liter by November 1st if they want to compete. But it's only for events 400 meters to the mile. Um, now, the IAAF said the new rules will, quote, preserve fair and meaningful competition in the female classification, uh, unquote, um, because women athletes with high testosterone have an advantage up to 9% over uh, other, other women, which is significant, obviously. Um, this is actually a rehash of an old rule. Um, between 2010 and 2015, women needed to be under 10 nanomoles per liter. Um, um, and so anybody that wanted to compete between 2010 and 2015 had to actually mm -hmm. chemically alter it, had to bring down to 10. This takes it down even lower. This takes it down to 5 nanomoles out of yeah. a liter here. Um, now, just for reference, by the way, a normal female, and I, I really don't want to use that word all that much, but... but Should we the, say maybe average? Or? The average is a yeah. much better way of saying it. The average female range is about 1 to 2 nanomoles, um, and the average male range is about 10 to 20. Um, and so men, on average, uh, have about 10, 10 to 15 times as uh, higher levels of testosterone uh, than women do. Um, now, here's the issue. Natural testosterone um, can increase muscle mass and strength as well as levels of circulating hemoglobin in the blood. Now, greater strength, greater hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is, is, is what carries oxygen in your blood to your muscles. Right. Um, that's especially helpful in the 400 meters, the 800 meters, the 1500 meters, the mile, in those sort of middle distance events. And so experts guess it might add about, about 7 to 9 seconds or, or subtract about 7 to 9 seconds if you have elevated testosterone levels uh, in an 800. So all of this kind of revolves around a South African athlete uh, named Caster Semenya. Caster Semenya burst onto the stage in 2009 um, with, a, uh, with a World Junior Championship. Uh, and people started complaining about her. She's a black South African complaining about her appearance and, and, and her rapid improvement. And they said, you know, I'm not sure that that's, that's a woman. Um, and so they, they, they underwent some sexual verification tests and all that sort of thing. And then in 2010, they put in place this 10 nanomoles per liter rule. And she had to chemically bring herself down to that. In 2015, the Court for Arbitration of Sport threw out those rules. And so she no longer had to chemically bring down her natural levels. In 2016, she won the 800 meters at the Olympic Games. In 2017, she won the 800 meters at the World Championships. Um, and it can be argued, and has been argued, um, that she has an unfair advantage because she has very high natural testosterone levels that are much higher than that 1% to 2% uh, that the average female actually has. Uh, and that might give her about a 7 to 9% bump in the 800 meters, which... In the 800 meters, that's the difference between a high schooler and an Olympian. Right. Um, uh, that's huge. Uh, seven to nine seconds in 800 meters. Um, it gets thornier because it can kind of get bound up in race. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's a black South African, and, and the IAAF is based in Europe. Right. Um, and so a lot of South Africans see this as, as a 2018 version of, of, of imperialism and colonialism. Mm -hmm. that, that they don't like being beaten by a black South African in, in traditional track events. And so they're going to, to find a way to actually um, um, uh, prevent her from competing. Mm -hmm. um, so again, 
I, I don't know that we can necessarily come to, 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 to a conclusion on today, and I don't want to come to a conclusion on today. But I, but I will say this. It does make me, and I'm speaking for myself here. I'm not speaking for Patrick. Um, I'm going to let Patrick speak for himself. <laughs> yeah. um, it does make me nervous to say someone who is a woman um, uh, who has naturally high levels of testosterone. She's never done anything in her life to raise her testosterone levels any more than what everybody else does, i.e. lifting weights and training and all that sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, that in order for her to compete, she has to bring her testosterone levels down artificially. Mm-hmm. She has to bring them down chemically. That rubs me the wrong way. Because I think about all the various other physical advantages that people have. And I talked about this on the Olympic podcast, wrapping up the Olympic podcast a couple years ago when I talked about Cassius Semenyan. That, that um, you know, Ian Thorpe and Michael Phelps have giant feet. Right. Right? They have literally like size 20 feet. Um, that undoubtedly helps them to swim faster. Um, right, because they essentially have flippers. Yeah, they, they essentially have flippers. I swim a whole lot faster when I'm wearing flippers, mm-hmm. when I have fins on. Right. Right? It helps me go a whole lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, not as fast as they do, but a whole lot faster, certainly. So so at what point are we going to say, oh, well, you know what? You can't compete if your feet are oversized 17. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah, she has a very unique, rare situation that leads her testosterone to be naturally higher. Mm-hmm. But, but how is that different from Michael Jordan being 6'8"? Mm-hmm. You know, is he six eight? I think six six and a half. Six six and a half. Well, right. LeBron's six eight. So, so, so LeBron being six eight, right? Yeah. If LeBron was five eight, would he be the world beater he is in basketball? Probably not. So there's 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 a physical attribute to him that predisposes him to to mm-hmm. athletic excellence and dominance, right? Mm-hmm. To me, it's hard for me to, to 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 draw those lines between the things that make him six eight and the things that make her have a higher natural testosterone. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So. Uh, this is obviously an extremely complicated issue, so, you know, we're just trying to focus on the facts here. Um, so, you know, one of the terms that I want to also throw out there is hyperandrogenism, which is simply the term for elevated levels of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Okay, now to get to your point, it's, it's been interesting to see the, the debate kind of play out in the community um, where they talk about, you know, how is this advantage different than other physiological advantages one athlete has over another, like Usain Bolt's long legs right. or... LeBron James's height, um, etc. This does appear to be a bit more complicated issue because nobody, well, like, let's get to the, to the LeBron James height thing. You know, the problem the problem is we did we have said well we're going to have a separate race for for men and women. We have not said we're going to have a separate league for under six feet tall and over six feet tall or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I I've got to be honest with you. I don't know where I stand. Mm-hmm. I would say my gut reaction is when I heard them say. You need to take this to chemically induce less testosterone. I don't like that. I don't like that either. That it just sounds a bit too much like, you know, I I, I don't like forcing somebody to be less than what they are. I shouldn't say less, but and it, it changed the way they are in a way that is not a like an improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, to me, the, the the kind of the real issue is. Um, it, one, it's very complicated, and we've never really set a standard to work from. Now, the IAAF says they are basing this on science. They're basing this ruling on science, mm-hmm. but we don't really know what that science is. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about the average, mm-hmm. you know, the 10% or so. 
But, I mean, that's like back-of-the-napkin science. Mm-hmm. That's not academic, rigorous well, yeah, and, and, research. And, and, and science is done by people. It's done by scientists. Yes. Right? And that and, was... And so, and so, so they're going to be bringing their own ideas into it. And then when, even when you and I talk about research and, and, we, and we look at what the science says, we still bring to it our own ideas about right. what's okay, what's not okay, what you should do, how you should use these sorts of things. So for the IAAF to, to just kind of say, oh, well, this is science. It's totally scientific. No, they're choosing how to use the science. Right. Um, and so, so, so to me, that, 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 that doesn't really convince me all that much. Yeah. Um, and then when you throw in the fact that, let's be honest, the IAAF, it's largely a group of males sitting around deciding who can compete as a female. Yeah. That's another thing that just, I mean, our history yeah. throughout time just shows there's not a strong track record there. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean let, like, I'm putting it very, very mildly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would much rather see an independent council of experts set up some rules based on academic, scientific research, rather than a group of people whose number one priority is to protect their own brand and their own money. Yeah. That's the other thing, too. You mentioned this is a South African runner. What if it was somebody in a country where they were making lots of money? It was a French runner. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was the real source of... What, what, what if it's, it was, a, it's not, what was a, a Dutch or a British runner, the, 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 the countries that colonized South you Africa? Know, <laughs> to bring in another sport, it's... There's a reason the NCAA has never nailed a big basketball or football program for cheating. If they're going to nail somebody, it's going to be, you know, Sanford or you know, some right. small school or something. Yeah. Um, so women should absolutely be involved in this decision. Um, even maybe women who have hyperandrogenism. Mm-hmm. So we can know what their experience has been. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, I can't individually speak to what this condition is like. You know, I, I, I don't even know. So to me, that's the big thing is we need to get real academics. We need to get real scientific research into this. And it needs to be, there needs to be a sound policy that is based in the science on a, on a, you know, from a council of experts who maybe have no skin in the game with track and fields. Mm-hmm. So then maybe they have a little bit less bias rather than, mm-hmm. you know, those who kind of currently have a lot to lose. And, and a process that takes in, and I think you just said this, I think it's super important, a process that takes into account the voices of people like Kasha Semenya. Yeah, um, because and this is totally unfair. She has become kind of the poster girl for this stuff, and that sucks for her. And she didn't choose to be. No, she's not choosing she, to be a revolutionary. She just wants to run, yeah. and 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 she she just wants to go out there and run hard and run fast and and win races, mm-hmm. just like you and I do. Yeah, you know, and 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 instead she she's being she she's being held up as a as a poster child for a hyperandrogenism. Um, and for and 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 she becomes an object lesson on who gets to be a woman and who doesn't. Yeah. Like what a what a terrible place to be. Yeah. You know what what a horrible position for her to be in because it's it's not ever going to work out in a positive way for her because she's she's having to be publicly subjected to all sorts of ugliness. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, and maybe that should be our last word on it here is that that that. Um, you know, have some some compassion for Castor Semenya and, and, and kind and of then where she other, and similar athletes are. And, and along that same lines, you know, another small point I wanted to, to, to bring up is, and we mentioned that I think two podcasts ago, it seems like a very narrow definition of the events because they said 400 to 1500. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the more testosterone you have, that helps you almost the further down the line you go. Yeah. It helps you more in 1800 than 1500, more in 400 than 1800. Yeah. So this seems specifically targeted at her. For sure, and it just it um, there doesn't seem to be a, a solid, clean, clear cut ruling based on. 
I, I agree with you. And, and the IAAF has responded to that, and, and they essentially said, no, it has nothing to do with her. It has to do with these events. Yeah. Um, and, and that feels disingenuous to me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and to me that casts a pall over the whole thing, because for you to say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with her. It has to do with these events only. For for them to say that, that feels disingenuous, and that makes the whole thing feel disingenuous. Yeah. 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 So, anyways, we're not ending on a happy note, unfortunately. <laughs> Somehow we let this get sad. Um, maybe because it's just been a long podcast, but it's it's something that needs to be discussed further. I'm sure there's going to be lots of debate over this. Um, you know, in, in years to come. This is not yeah. the final chapter. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, the rules go into effect November 1st. Or they're set to go into effect November okay. 1st. And so so that, that leaves this summer for all these things to be litigated in the Court of Arbitration for Sport and other places. Yeah. And so so it'll come up again, and we'll probably ultimately end up talking about it again. Um, but, but yeah, like we said, we, we weren't going to draw any conclusions today, but we did want to tell you what, what kind of where we are on it and, of course, where... Uh, uh, where, where the track world is on it right now as well. So, um, by all means, drop us a line, get in touch with us via Facebook, and let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, George. All right, we will see you next time, everybody. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Make sure that you reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Reach out to our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, at itlcoaching.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And don't forget about our other sponsor, Casey the Travel Planner. You can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash MEV. You can drop her an email at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. Or just go to her website, caseytravelplanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.